you're new with us, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. In 1994, the, the Nine Inch Nails, uh, you, did, you didn't think you would, uh, you'd hear that in, in church this morning, did you? The Nine Inch Nails released an album called The Downward Spiral. It's still, to this date, their best-selling best album. Trent Reznor is kind of the front man, the, the lead guy in the Nine Inch Nails, uh, does the writing for them. And, and there's a, a song that you may have heard of on this album called Hurt. It's an immensely personal song uh, written when Reznor was going through a very dark time in his life. Kind of the, the height of that song is verse 2 in the chorus. And I want to read that to you as we get started this morning. Verse 2 says this, I wear this crown of expletive. I went back and forth as to whether or not, but I thought that better to bleep that out. Um, But you can imagine. I wear this crown of blank upon my liar's chair, full of broken thoughts I cannot repair. Beneath the stain of time, the feelings disappear. You are someone else. I am still right here. What have I become? My sweetest friend, everyone I know, goes away in the end. You could have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. The song goes on in that vein. If you watch the video, it's even more dark and depressing. It begins and ends with a decomposing wolf corpse. There are images throughout of death, at one point, there's a mushroom cloud uh, from a, an atom bomb going off. It's, it's very dark and hopeless. That was 1994. In around 2002, I believe, legendary singer Johnny Cash reached out to Reznor via agents, you know, and uh, asked if he could cover it. Reznor was hesitant at first. It seemed a little gimmicky, but it was Johnny Cash, so he said, sure. And, and when he first heard the song... Johnny Cash's version. He said, it felt, it was good, but it just felt strange. Like watching someone kiss your girlfriend. It it was this intimate thing that was so much a part of him that someone else had kind of made their own. But then he watched the video, which we're going to watch together. Reznor received a copy of this video when he was working with Rage Against the Machine's Zach De La Roca, uh, producing a record with him. And he decided to watch it with Zach. He, uh, in an interview, described what his experience of watching this video was. He says, it's morning. I'm in the studio in New Orleans working on Zach De La Roca's record with him. I popped the video in and... Wow. Tears, welling, silence, goosebumps. Wow. That song isn't mine anymore. Then it all made sense to me. It really made me think about how powerful music is as a medium and an art form. What's amazing about this is if you were to read the lyrics, if you were to put them side by side, they're word for word. It's the same song except for one word. Maybe you caught it. 
I wear this crown of thorns. Cash takes this song. He, he listens to, to Reznor's, Reznor's song, and, and he identifies the truth in it. The pain, the heartache, the disappointment, the hopelessness, the despair. He sees all of that, and he recognizes there's something really beautiful here. But it doesn't quite get at what Cash what Cash thinks he wants to say. And so he changes the word from the expletive to thorns. And as you watch the video, you watch all of these scenes from Cash's life, right? And then at at kind of the pinnacle of the song, it's juxtaposed with these images of Jesus and his crucifixion. And my favorite scene is, is Cash sitting at the table pouring out wine. You're familiar with communion, which we'll, we'll take in a little bit here. The, the bread and juice, the, the wine is representative of Christ's blood, suffering. And so in the middle of all of this despair and hopelessness and sadness, of Cash kind of seeing all that he's built and how quickly it all falls apart, you know, images of the Cash Museum being destroyed by floodwaters, these things that seemed like so much of an accomplishment that are so easy to get washed away. But in the midst of that, rather than seeing hopelessness, right? Like Reznor, he got at the pain of human experience, but he couldn't get beyond that. All he could see was suffering and pain and destruction. And Cash said, you're right, that's true. But there's a redemptive arc to it all. There's there's something going on that's, that's bringing hope and meaning, even in the darkness, even in, in the despair. This isn't hopeless. There's something there. And so, even though he covers the song, he makes it something different. Something that points towards hope, even as it recognizes the reality of pain. And so, in, in doing so, he made something new. He created something. Well, we are continuing with a series we just started last week uh, that we're calling Identity. And in this series, we're looking at uh, our core values as a church. Basically, what makes us, us. We felt like this was kind of just a good time to to bring those out, blow the dust off, and remind ourselves, kind of, what is it that, that drives us? What do we value? Why do we exist as a community? So last week, we looked at relational. We, we have five core values. We'll throw them up here to, to remind you. Last week, we looked at relational This week, we're going to jump in to looking at culturally relevant. Now, that's kind of an an interesting phrase, culturally relevant. And and you might think a number of things when you hear it. Uh, You may think that culturally relevant means that we're just trying to be cool um, or that we're afraid of offending people. And I have to confess, personally, I have on many occasions tried to be cool. I emphasize tried. You can ask my kids. Uh, they, they serve many wonderful functions. One of them is to be our kind of my, my reality check, right? Like when I, when I think I can, you know, bust out the whip and nay-nay or something, they're like, yeah, Dad, mm, we're not, that's really, no, no. Um, so, so I will confess that sometimes I, I try to be cool, and it doesn't go well. Um, and, and I also confess that sometimes I get worried about offending people. 
that is true. You know, sometimes I will bite my tongue when I should say something, when love might compel me to say something that's challenging. Um, but that's not what we mean when we say that. That's sometimes where I go personally or things I might struggle with. So when you're like, oh, but yeah, yeah sure, sometimes that's true, but that's not what we're aspiring to. That's not, not what we feel called to when we talk about being culturally relevant. What we mean when we say that is that we see something really true about who God is and how God engages with culture that we think we need to follow. That when we look at the person of Jesus, we can't get around the fact that he was culturally relevant. So we'll unpack this more this week when we talk about um, being Christ-centered, but we, we see ourselves as a, a real Jesus-centered community. We focus on the person of Jesus and how Jesus reveals God to us. And because of that, we believe that when God most wanted us to see him, when, when God wanted us to see him face-to-face, he did that by becoming one of us. That God came on our terms. He took on our nature so that we could learn to take on his, not the other way around. God didn't create distance. He bridged it. He stepped into time and place. And in doing so, he entered fully into a culture that Jesus is actually a historical figure who you can locate in a historical time and place. That he took on all that is humanity. He probably had an accent. He spoke a language that none of us would recognize. He was a particular ethnicity. He, he was a person fully engaged in his culture, not separate from it. And that's because culture isn't inherently good or evil. We can often, you know, we can take certain postures towards culture, where sometimes we can take a defensive posture, right? Like that culture is always the thing we're fighting against. You you might have heard the term culture warrior, right? Like we have to fight against culture. It's always leading us somewhere bad that we shouldn't go. Or we might take the other, kind of the, the polar opposite, where we just believe any kind of trend or any kind of movement the culture is making is good, and we just need to go with that. Jesus doesn't take either of those polar stances. He recognizes that that culture is neither good nor bad. It just is. Culture is what people do. Because if you remember last week, if you were here, we talked about being made in God's image. We'll talk about this a lot. If you look at at Genesis, which is the first book in Scripture that we come to, it talks about the beginning. We learn that we're made in the image of the Creator, that we reflect God's image. That's why we talked about Last week, how? Because God is Trinity, lives in loving relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, that living in relationship is just part of what it means to be human, to be fully alive, to reflect God's image. In the same way, because God is creator, part of what it looks like to be in God's image is we create. We just do. Human beings are creative beings. And so we make culture. That's what we do neither good nor bad, it just is, right? And so we create language. It was interesting. I was having a conversation with my daughter the other day about cursing. And it's fascinating if you think, I don't know how much you think about cursing, um, but depending on what culture you're in at what time, period, 
or even currently, if you were to travel to a completely different country, the words that are offensive are different. Words, even in, in English-speaking countries, particular words that are offensive here are not necessarily offensive in other places. They're culturally bound. They mean certain things in certain cultures. We recognize that. Language is a cultural creation. It's not good nor bad, it just is. It's, it's, it's necessary. We create art. Part of what makes this a great place to be in is that many of you have created art that we put on our walls that creates an opportunity for us to reflect and to feel like there's something meaningful that we can participate in even with our eyes. We create types of food and drink. We create laws. We create buildings. And how we create those buildings shape culture. Immediately and, and, and kind of broadly, right? So, for example, my wife and I went out to eat at a, a restaurant first time. And in this particular restaurant, they had tables that were very close to each other. And, and we're sitting there talking. We have a really nice conversation. And this will probably tell you a lot about me. But we're sitting out and, and we're talking about what we think about. It's a restaurant that a friend of ours had started. And, and we'd wanted to go for a while. And so we're there talking. She's like, what do you think about it? I was like, it's nice. But you know what they need more of? TVs. Because, you now feel bad for my wife, right? Because, like, like, I'm here now, and there could be a game on, and and that would be great. And um, and did you see someone said, ah, they feel bad for you. Um, But, yes, so she's like, honey, I kind of think that's the point. I I don't, I think that's intentional. And, of course, I'm always the slow one. So it took me a few minutes. I was like, oh, you're right. And the way the restaurant was set up, at least in this one particular place, was tables are really close. You know, there's no TVs. And so... There's like four people. Now, some of you, if you don't really like people, this, this will drive you crazy. But there's like four tables, and you're, you're almost, you're like, you know, four inches from the person next to you. So when the person in the middle needs to go to the bathroom, they have to like ask people to move so they can get out. We're, we're talk, by the time we're done with our hour and a half meal, we like know the people three tables down from us, and we're talking about how that appetizer was. And I believe at one point someone tried ours. I'm not exactly sure. Um, but it was this real kind of communal experience. And by the time we were done, I'm like, Oh, yeah, that was completely intentional, right? Like, they wanted to create space where people actually got to know each other. And the way they did that was all in how they arranged the architecture, all in how they arranged the seating and what they chose to include and what they chose not to include. You see this in your homes, right? Depending on how you set up your home, it creates different spaces, different cultures within the home. What's the center of the living space? Well, in some homes, it's the television set, right? Um, and that's, that's the place where we congregate. We maybe watch something together, but it's really clear, like, this is the thing that we do when we're together. In other homes, it, it might not be. There's, there's maybe a table that forms the center. How homes are set up shapes the culture of the family. And we don't often think about these things. Sometimes it happens almost accidentally, right? Like, we, we do things in a particular way because it's how they, we think they, sh- they should go. And then before we know it, we've created a culture we didn't intend to create. But that's just what we do. We're, we're creators. And it, it goes on and on and on. Uh, Andy Crouch, author, professor, uh, in his book Culture Making, says this. He says, culture is what we make of the world. Culture is, first of all, the name for our relentless, restless human effort to make the world as it's given to us. I'm sorry, to take the world as it's given to us and make something else. It's just what we do as humans. I love that quote. 
at the same time, just because it's a good thing, or just because it can be really good, doesn't mean it's always good, right? Like, not everything we create is awesome. Because we can sometimes tend to be greedy or self-centered. To use power and privilege that we have to get things for ourselves at the expense of others. We can sometimes create cultures that are negative. A couple of years ago, I was working with a group of college students at York College, and uh, I had a group of student leaders. We had a pretty large group, and uh, it, was, it was actually kind of the biggest group on campus, and, and we were doing a lot of cool things. And I, I, I had four key student leaders who were all seniors. They're all 21. And, and we were talking about kind of what kinds of things we were doing on campus. And, and, and I was realizing, like, we're really... We're, as, as much as we're reaching lots of people, we're, we're not really engaged in the campus culture. How do we get more engaged in what people are doing? And I realized there's a place that none of my students ever go, but lots of other students go all the time. And that's the bar on the edge of campus. It was this place called Murph's. And uh, I thought, oh, this, is, th- this would be a great thing. Like, all of my students are 21. They're all, you know, they're all solid solid young adults. They, they got a good head on their shoulders. They can handle this. Um, so it was like three guys, one woman. And I was like, hey, for wh- what we're doing now to prep for the semester, we're not going to kind of get together and do some kind of study. We're going to go hang out at Murph's, and we're going to connect with people. And at first they're like, are you, are you sure that that's a good idea? I was like, yeah, yeah, it's great. Now, I'd never been there. Okay? I hadn't been there, right? Yeah. But I, I hadn't. So, um, we're, uh, so I was like, no, 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 this will be good. This will be good. We're going to go. All of your friends go. I know all of your friends go. We should go and hang out, and we'll connect with people. And they're like, all right, if you say so. And so we went. And because I had never been to, you know, at this point, I had never been to a college bar. And in my, in my years in college, I was not a bar goer. Um, and so I didn't really know, the, you know, how things went. So we showed up at, like, 1030. Of course, no one's there. Um, and so um, me and, me and the, my four leaders just hung out and played pool for, like, an hour. Finally, people started kind of rolling in, and we're like, all right, this is going to be good now. We're going to hang out. And everyone's kind of going to the back of the bar. And there's, like, several rooms. You know, there's the front room. There's the middle room, which is where all the pool table was. And then there's this, like, dark back room. Um, and so everyone's going back in the back room. So eventually I was like, well, we should go back there with them. <laughs> yes, yes, I am that naive. Uh, I'm like, we should go back where everyone's going. Um, and now this probably isn't going to get quite as bad as some of you think it might get. But we're, we get into the back, and of course, this is like, this is the dance kind of section of the area. I'm like, oh, okay, so they're going to have a DJ, they're going to have live music, it's going to be cool. And so he starts playing music, and before long, it quickly becomes clear how this works. All of the young men end up kind of forming a circle, and the one woman who came with me, um, form a circle kind of on the outside of the room. Well, all the young women dance in the middle, very provocatively, very suggestively with one another. And so we stood there, I know, we stood there for a few minutes, and I'm just like, this was an ill-conceived plan. (laughs) I'm really not sure how to recover from this one. And so, um, you know, after a while, I kind of make eye contact with some of the the other leaders, because of course you can't hear anything. And I'm just like, time to go. And so uh, the, the five of us kind of walk out, and I'm, I'm just kind of like, I, I'm, I have no idea what's going on, and they're just kind of snickering, because they all knew this was coming. Um, so th- the point of that story is, there are certain things that you just kind of look at, and you're like, yeah, that's not good. 
You know, that, that's not good. Creating a space where we all kind of objectify people, not really good. And there's not, we're not going to try and, like, get in there and do something. We're just going to kind of walk away. Um, so uh, just because Jesus models stepping into culture doesn't mean that he affirms all of it. I mean, when you look at how Jesus interacts, you know, he talked to the people who created a culture of religiosity and legalism, and he's like, that's the wrong direction. This is not where we're going. He talked to people whose lives centered on greed and self-interest, and he said, that's not how you're to live. This is not how your creator made you. Jesus didn't have a problem saying, these trends in our culture are not helpful, they're not good. But he wasn't escapist, he wasn't isolationist, he wasn't like, all right, let's pull back and just kind of form our own little, little thing over here and just let them all go to hell, right? Like, just let them all go into hell in a handbasket, we'll just do our little thing over here. No, Jesus was at work in the culture, bringing redemption, bringing hope, bringing a different story about how people within that culture could find life and meaning and hope. And he did it in a way that made sense to people. So there's lots of different examples that we could use. Um, when I mentioned that we were going to talk about cultural relevance, um, Keith Davis, who's a part of our community here, came up to me. He's like, oh, did you think about this passage? And I was like, oh, no, that's kind of cool. I could use that. And so, uh, so this is thanks to Keith Davis. He came up with this. But I think th- this is as good as any. There's a lot of different examples of how Jesus does this. But I want to look at one in uh, the first biography of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, Matthew. And this is Matthew chapter 16. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you have a Bible, you can... Uh, Check it out in Matthew 16. If you don't, it's going to be up here on the screen. And we'd love to invite you to grab a Bible. We have them sitting on the countertop in the foyer area. You can grab one of those and take it with you as our gift to you. So Jesus is meeting. He's walking with his disciples, his students. um, And we're going to pick it up here in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And all the, all the, I'm sorry, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. Okay, so this is a passage that if kind of just read at face value without context, there's still a lot of really good stuff here we can see that, that Peter kind of has this revelation, this declaration that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who's come to kind of bring God's kingdom, God's rule here on earth. But when we look at kind of the context around it, when we begin to understand some of the cultural realities that exist in this story, we realize that Jesus is doing something that's really culturally bound. Not that it doesn't go beyond that culture, but it's understood most fully when we get what's going on in the culture around him. Let me explain. So, for example, um, it turns out that Caesarea Philippi is this city that has... Uh, it's really well known for its worship of pagan gods, uh, particularly Pan, but lots of different gods that it worshipped. Also in Caesarea Philippi was a temple that was built to the Caesar. Um, Caesars were seen as divine, as the, the sons of the gods. And so there was a temple built in Caesarea Philippi to worship the Caesar. 
there's, uh, let's see, what else? There, oh, you can see there's a picture here of a wall that had lots of carvings of different deities, which you can't really make out so much, in this wall that were worshipped. And so this is kind of all in the background of Caesarea Philippi. And it's here that Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah, that he's the king, the, the true son of the living God, over and against Caesar. Right? Like when we hear the, the term son of the living God in this, we can say, oh, okay. Again, like we talked about the Trinity last week, Father, Son, Spirit. Um, so what they're saying is that Jesus is the Son and God is the Father. Well, not exactly. I mean, that's, that's true, but they're relating it to this understanding that Caesar is the Son of God. And, Jesus, and Peter's actually saying, like, no, 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 you're, you're the, the real Son of God. Like, you are God's real representative here on earth, not the Caesar. It's charged culturally. It's also of note that this city, um, th- this rock is kind of a prominent thing in the, in the city. It, it sits at the base of Mount Hermon, and there's this giant kind of rock wall present. And it's with that, presum- now we don't know if they can see it, but kind of presum- in the relative background as they're at the city, that this declaration to Peter that on this rock I will build my church. That on this declaration, on this recognition that I, I am God's representative. I am the one bringing God's kingdom on earth. That it's that that is going to serve as the foundation of my church. And then he says, the gates of hell can't, can't overcome it. Which we might again jump literally to like, oh, okay, so he's talking about hell and, and you know, as in this kind of location. But one of the interesting things that we realize as we look at kind of culturally what's happening here is there's a cave at the foot of this wall in Mount Hermon that water comes out of, a stream comes out of. And in this culture, there, there was kind of a general fear of water. It was understood as kind of the, the, the underworld where the dead went was kind of a watery, chaotic place. That, and so there's this kind of general fear about water. And wherever water came out of places like caves, there was kind of this, this mythology that the gods would come in and out of those places. The gods of the underworld, like Baal, would enter and, and leave our current uh, reality through those places. And so, anecdotally, they'd call them the, the gates of hell. And so this... This revelation that Jesus is the one who reveals God to them, who is over and above all other gods and deities, that all of that, while there are kind of universal implications, it's, it's said in this language, in this context, that's very culturally bound. It's understood best when we understood the culture within which it's shared. This isn't Jesus kind of being cute it's not him just kind of trying to say, like, oh, this is fun. Like, I know you call this this, so, so I'm going to use that same word. It's Jesus seeing these stories that they're living by and recognizing that they're not heading in the right direction. And so he's bringing, he's bringing to light what's true in the midst of the current way that they understand the world. Like, I know you see the world this way, but here's actually what's true. I am God's representative. 
over and against Caesar, over and against all these other gods. I am. Me. It infuses it with meaning when we understand that Jesus was speaking to a particular people in a particular context. And this happens throughout the entire Bible, but even just in the Gospels. I mean, so the Gospels is the words we've, we've come to, to call the, the four biography of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The word gospel has its start in a Greek word that was originally used to declare the good news that a Caesar was born. And so when people would declare the gospel before Jesus, that word was used. They didn't in, Christians didn't invent it. Before Jesus, the gospel of the birth of a Caesar was commonly used. And so when gospel is used, good, the good news of Jesus, it's used recognizing that typically what that is referring to is this political military power. Understood in that light, we see this is actually a very, it's a very counter kind of political uh, thing that these Christians are doing. This is the good news of Jesus, not of the Caesar, of Jesus. And again and again, Jesus and his followers would take these images, these cultural images, and say, this kind of misses it. Here's, the re- here's, here's what's really happening. Here's what is really going on behind the scenes that you don't understand. But they would do it within a language, in a, in a particular way that made sense to normal people. They didn't say suddenly you have to change everything and understand and, and use our language and our fancy words and, and come to our places. No, we, they would go into their places, the marketplaces, speak the language of the people in a way that made sense to normal, everyday people. I mean, even the Bible. I mean, that's why we have this beautiful text that is so varied, because it uses different literary forms in particular contexts. It uses apocalyptic literature and poetry. There are places where we see kind of ancient uh, household codes that were commonplace that get used in Scripture, but new light is shined on them. Scripture is full of these kind of ways in which God enters into a particular culture and reveals what's true that people often miss. He brings to light truth and hope in a way that people can understand. This is what we see Jesus doing again and again. And so when we talk about wanting to be culturally relevant, that's what we mean. We want to be people who are following Jesus into our culture, understanding what values our culture shares, what, what longings our culture has, identifying the places where they're, they're, they're pointing at truth and illuminating what the story of God says in the midst of all of that. What is God doing even in this culture right now, in this place? That is what we hope to do. That is what we feel called to. So what are the implications of that? Um, I think there are some kind of collective implications and there's individual ones. Um, I think collectively, uh, the, the full kind of statement of this uh, culturally relevant 
uh, statement in our, in our bylaws is culturally relevant for everyday life. A- and that's important because one of the things we're not necessarily trying to do is simply kind of be this, this group of people who are kind of engaging with kind of broad, like, world culture, right? Like, we're not necessarily speaking to people in the Pacific Northwest or in New York or in L.A. or in the Deep South. We're in Berks County. We are in a particular context, at a particular place. And so we want to be a community that is listening to the, the longings, the hurts, the needs, the, the narratives of our particular place and speak to that and ask, what is, it, what is it that they get right? What is it that we get right? And what is it that God is doing in the midst of that? Where might God be pointing us in a different direction, shaping the story differently than most people see, than even many of us see? And how might we kind of move there together and invite others to join us? That's why when we think about things like our outreach and our programming, we're always trying to think about not just kind of what do we want to do, what's fun for us, but what do our neighbors care about? What are the questions that our neighbors are asking? What are their longings? How do we create space for them to connect? This is also why I think some of our best stuff happens when we're working in partnership with community organizations that are doing some great things. That's why we partner with groups like Burke's Women in Crisis, Bridge of Hope, um, Pins and Green, etc. Because we want to be tuned in to what is happening right here with our neighbors, with our community, so that we can be listening to what God might want to do in this particular context. And then, of course, that's also why we use things like you know, movie clips and music videos is because we understand that many people, this is, this is kind of, these are the stories that, that we are living in. You know, a lot of us aren't, aren't reading a lot. These are our stories. These are our cultural narratives, what we find in movies and music. And so we, we try to engage those together and ask questions about what are the stories being told here and what is, what is the Jesus story and how do those things come together? That's why one of the things, I love that our, our Highway 712 group they're, they've been watching movies together and talking about what are some of the themes we see here? What are some of the questions this raises? How do we respond to this? I love that. So, so we try to engage that well. So collectively, we try to do that. Individually, I think it's really important that we learn how to be engaged in our communities. This is one of the reasons why we try really hard not to over-program things here. Um, you know, often... I've had people ask me or others have had people ask them, like, oh, why couldn't, could we do, like, a Sunday evening service? Could we do, like, a Wednesday night service? And, you know, there's times and places for things like that. But generally, we say, like, people, we get that everyone's really busy. And we want you to be involved in your communities. We want you to be coaching your kids' sports teams. We want you to be, you know, running for local office. We want you to be involved with you know, the, the committee at work that has to meet extra to make some decisions about things that are happening at the office. We want you to be engaged with your neighbors, to have space in your life, to be a part of what's happening in the people's lives around you. That's, that's like the real nitty-gritty where this stuff that Jesus talks about really takes shape in our lives. And so we don't want to create a sense in which you feel like, oh, there's always stuff I'm going to that's taking me away from my neighborhood, that's taking me away from my community. We want to the best of our ability to kind of propel one another out into our communities, to be more involved. Now, I know that 
probably many of you hear that and you're like, I'm just, there's no way that I could be involved in anything more than I am. And you might be right. And in fact, every yes has a corresponding no. And so we don't always say yes to things. We have to say no to things if we're going to say yes. So I'm not encouraging you to be more involved, but I am encouraging you to be thoughtful about what you're involved with. Are you engaged in your community with your neighbors? Do you, understand, you know what's going on locally in a way that you can actually be a part of these conversations? Be prayerfully considering what God might be saying in the midst of this? I, I think that's where we belong. I think that's, that's where... That's where this stuff really makes sense when we live it out in relationships in our community. And then along with that, I think we just need to be really practical. You know, that's the everyday life part. That it's, it's not like we're just, again, we're not just trying to be cool as we talk about cultural relevance. We need to be really practical. How does this stuff, this, this Bible stuff, this Jesus stuff, what does it matter in everyday life? How does it impact my neighbors? Not theoretically, but really. How does it work itself out in our lives? And so, you know, collectively we try and figure out what does it look like for us to engage people in a way that is inviting, is welcoming, that actually deals with issues that matter to normal people. And individually, again, we recognize that everyday life is the laboratory in which our faith is worked out that when we choose to follow in the way of Jesus, this stuff really, the rubber hits the road in everyday interactions. So loving your enemies is not primarily about what you think about ISIS. It's what you do with your in-laws or your coworkers or the people that you have to deal with every day who frustrate you who cause you to get angry. How, do you, how, how does this stuff work itself out in those relationships? Living simply and generously, that, that Jesus' call not to worry, not to put our trust in, in money, that we, that's not just, well, someday when I'm a millionaire, I'll worry about that. But what does that mean right now, even when I'm struggling to make ends meet? What does it mean for me to live simply and responsibly and generously right now? What does it mean to me to respond to someone's mistakes with grace and forgiveness and not anger? How do I exercise patience and compassion and empathy? What are the gifts that I have and how am I utilizing them to be a blessing to others rather than just to make a life for myself? Those are the kinds of questions that really make this come alive. Not just doctrinal things about what we believe, but what does what we believe have to do with our everyday life? And as as we live out the way of Jesus in these practical ways, we create culture. We create the culture within which we live. How you respond to your coworkers the choices you make at your home, in your neighborhood, they shape the culture in small ways, bit by bit, step by step. 
we get to have a choice in joining God and being creators, creating something meaningful, purposeful, true, beautiful, wherever we are. That's what we mean when we say we want to be culturally relevant. Father, I'm really grateful that uh, you, you step into our culture and you bring light and hope and redemption in us and in our culture itself. Would you help us to be people who very humbly listen for your voice in the midst of our culture, who live out your, your life, your teachings in our lives, and again, who humbly and graciously invite others to consider this for themselves, both in how we live and in what we say. Thank you. Thank you for your death, your resurrection, that we might find life. Be with us now as we reflect on that event together.